2: Hello, I'm Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical, where we examine all the cultural assumptions you take for granted, like that there are no Thanksgiving songs. Producer Harry, take it away.
3: Thanksgiving Day is coming, and Mr. Turkey said, It's very careful, I must be, or I will lose my head. The pumpkin said to the turkey, It frightens me, oh my. They'll mix me up with sugar and spice, and I'll be a pumpkin pie.
2: Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Okay, what's increasingly fascinating to me about this day, Thanksgiving, is that it's become about two things that pull against each other like a highly dynamic migraine. Table manners on the one hand, and savage political arguments on the other. This new version of Thanksgiving is a far cry from the way we used to hear about Thanksgiving in our childhoods, that it was supposed to be merely boring. Today, the specter of explosive arguments lends high suspense to the day. It's like an exciting episode of Succession, where we're all sitting through dinner that at any moment might lurch into drunken tears or some kind of of top-of-voice aria about January 6th. And then, while we're walking this tightrope in which breaches of decorum and over-loud assertions about politics are always beckoning us, this all requires supreme discipline, But then there's this additional cognitive burden ladled onto all of our plates, like box stuffing with chunks of canned ham and oysters. And it's that we're expected to be both grateful and happy while we pull all of this off. Okay, this is just framing in the media This is just what they're now telling us about Thanksgiving. Of course, there's nothing intrinsic to Thanksgiving that makes it so infernally demanding. And if you want more of a throwback 90s Thanksgiving, you should look at some of those old newspaper stories about Thanksgiving as a dull, sleepy day, smothered in tedium rather than spiked with anxiety, and how at night you were supposed to go find some old high school friends, go to five old Nugget Alley, get drunk and make out with one of your old friends in a cold New England car or maybe that was just me. In any case, remember that you get to author your own Thanksgiving, and as long as you do a bunch of dishes, no one's gonna get irritated with you. And also, if you're headed to a hometown, rent a car or bring your electric scooter, get to a place where you don't instantly regress to teenagerdom. If you have some kind of transportation and you do the dishes, there are plenty of chances for fun, and I even recommend a conversation topic that's one size fits all and you can't go wrong. UFOs, just bring them up. In the 365 days since last Thanksgiving, UFOs have been demonstrated to be 100% real, and everyone likes talking about them of every stripe in politics. So let's hear it for real UFOs and the Pentagon verified videos, something we can all be grateful for. Today's topic is etiquette. That's right, but we're not being prescriptive. Instead, we've invited two guests, one a social scientist who's rather a manners skeptic, and the other is a member of the Emily Post Manners dynasty and gracious upholder of etiquette himself, that's Daniel Post Senning. Daniel's helped publish updated editions of Emily Post's etiquette, including one coming out for the 100-year anniversary. He also hosts the awesome etiquette podcast, with his cousin, Lizzie Post. Daniel Post-Senning, welcome to This is Critical.
4: It is such a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me.
2: Because we're in the midst of Thanksgiving, I thought it would be appropriate to ask you why this is the real time of year that people start worrying about table manners. This is supposed to be the teachable moment about forks and elbows and interruptions and chewing with your mouth closed. Has it always been this way? People people s- chosen this time of year to talk about it?
4: Absolutely. Um, there is one day of the year where our web traffic spikes off the charts. Uh, we're talking exponential differences in terms of the number of traffic that we get, and it's Thanksgiving Day. And of course, table settings is the number one search that day. It crashes our website consistently. We can't um, we can't prevent that. So we just move all the table setting advice to the homepage and just leave it there um, as immediately available as possible. But it's a great etiquette holiday. It's based on Thanksgiving and gratitude. And if there's anything that's at the heart of good etiquette, it's core human relationship skills like gratitude and the details, the manners around the table are important. But if etiquette's a combination of manners and core principles, Thanksgiving's got both. So it, it really is a the quintessential etiquette holiday.
2: So I... Was reflecting on saying thank you a few years ago and wondering if it's a little because it's so habitual and because so many parents seem to coerce it from their kids. Say thank you, Um, send a thank you note that doesn't use the phrase thank you. That was my mother's favorite, you know, the, the old fashioned way. I love the sweater and I've been wearing it every day instead of thank you. But, you know, I felt. I almost like maybe thank you is like, I'm sorry. We just say it too often in those words. There must be another way to express a wholesome form of gratitude as opposed to one that feels a bit coerced or even perjured by overuse.
4: That is such a great question because it also takes us to another essentially important fundamental value or principle when it comes to good etiquette, which is honesty or sincerity. And when i'm teaching children's programs we talk about magic words please thank you you're welcome and when the when when little children are learning to use these words they learn them as really practical skills and the the emphasis is always on the doing of them but ultimately as adults we know that a an insincere please or a sarcastic thank you can be as detrimental to a relationship as a sincere please or thank you can benefit it The magic isn't in the words. It's what you bring to them, and it's your approach. And ultimately, that's the important lesson. So, do you have to thank someone? No. Do the thank you note police exist? Will they come get you if you don't? Probably not, once you're out of the house and out on your own. But the fact that it's not an obligation, I think, makes it even more powerful. The traditions that we inherit, the particular behaviors that we expect of ourselves and others, oftentimes called manners, things like finish your plate so that people know you felt well served or write a thank you note, um, are oftentimes shorthands. They're they're shortcuts into places that are going to be really useful for us. If you were learning... Uh, a science education, you wouldn't have to reinvent the ideal gas law, you would be taught it. and The same is true of our social behaviors. There are a lot of things that we don't need to reinvent. We can learn them, we can stand on the shoulders of giants. and That's where I think a lot of those traditions can be really important, and they can be really helpful. It's not that we're, um, that we're forced to observe them, but I think they can be really practically helpful, and they can be used to our advantage if we interact with them in ways that are intelligent.
2: Speaking of standing on the shoulders of giants, you are from the post-etiquette dynasty. Do manners run in the family? Is there a kind of induction ceremony? Are you tapped? Um, are you taught certain principles? How did it get handed down to you?
4: It's a pretty organic process within the family. Um, it, it is a family tradition for... For the Post family, Emily was my great great grandmother. So currently, it's the the fifth generation of the Post family that are that are running the Emily Post Institute. The the backbone of what we do is updating the book that she originally wrote in 1922, and it is a unique tradition in that it has been evolved and updated pretty continuously for almost a hundred years now. We're at about the hundred year anniversary of the tradition, and whereas most etiquette books are are snapshots in time, if you go read Amy Vanderbilt's book. It, it it defines a certain set of social expectations at a certain time or Letitia Baldridge, many years later. Um, the Emily Post tradition has, has been around consistently enough that you can really see some of those changes and evolutions. As far as how that functions within the family, I think it's a pretty natural process. I think in the same way that um, etiquette and social expectations are handed down in any family, they were handed down in mine. I didn't feel any particular pressure about it growing up. In fact, I always used to love visiting my grandparents, and they were the stewards of the tradition when I was growing up. They were some of the most generous, welcoming, warm people I ever had the pleasure to to be around. So was there pressure? Did it ever feel awkward? No, exactly the opposite. My understanding of good etiquette is that it's fundamentally about putting people at ease and making people feel comfortable. And- That same comfort I felt in my own family is what I would really hope the tradition of Emily Post Etiquette provides for people as they come to understand it and and understand how it operates.
2: That sounds lovely, but of course, Post Etiquette is bound by certain cultural norms, and in particular— waspy tradition, has post-etiquette dropped something that seemed to be a relic of a kind of social caste and e- either introduced something new or sort of abolished the superstitions around
4: it entirely? Um, absolutely. The, the the examples are so number, it's it's hard to, to to go through all of them. I mean, we could think about something like the adoption of Ms., MS, that um, mm-hmm. we, we had— in my grandmother's time, uh, a complete change in social expectations around the professional world, around women working, around how women are addressed. The fact that 50 years ago, we didn't even have a title for adult women that wasn't based on marital status. But ideally, from my perspective, the tradition continues to change and evolve, become more inclusive as we all become more aware.
2: Although when you talk about honorifics and, and point to the Miz, I mean, I, that tradition, I think, at the New York Times is, you know, some 30-plus years old. And obviously conversations around honorifics have changed since then, whether to use them at all, whether to use, uh, you know, MX for you know, as a kind of gender-neutral honorific. Um, and these things move fast uh, in in the broader world before they get codified, I think, at, yeah. you know, by— etiquette specialists. Are there any that you, that, that you have lobbied, say, to push? The,
4: the, the particular evolution of the tradition that I think intrigued me the most as I was growing up and that frankly made me the most comfortable deciding to go work for the Emily Post Institute in my early 30s was when the state of Vermont, where a lot of the Post family live, was one of the first states to allow legal civil unions the Emily Post Institute started to get a lot of questions about how to um, how to navigate gay and lesbian weddings. And it was the response of the generation before me to those questions that I think really encouraged me to think of the tradition as something that I could be proud to take on and be a part of, in that when they first started receiving questions, well, well what do I do when I receive an invitation to a wedding that is... Two men. That's a gay wedding, and the answer that our family was giving was, well, you respond by the RSVP date, and you send a gift because you've just been invited to a wedding. Um, it was just so so reasonable and so sensible, and it made so much sense to me personally that it made me really um, more comfortable and take more seriously the idea of of, of joining the Emily Post Institute. The one other concept that I think oftentimes comes up around etiquette is a question of judgment, whether etiquette is being used to assess others and to to rank or organize or exclude or include for, for, for any reason. And one of the concepts I really love to share when I get the opportunity is that I think etiquette can be transformational. It can be incredibly powerful when we use it as a tool for self-assessment and self-reflection, when we say to ourselves— how does the tradition of writing a thank you note function for me? Can it help me? Is sending this note going to benefit my relationship with the person that receives it? Powerful, powerful questions. When you're asking yourself, why didn't that person send me a note? The whole utility of the exercise changes completely. And, it, and from my way of, of seeing things, starts to become much less functional and, and, and much less useful to us, either individually or collectively.
2: So when you say that etiquette is inclusive at parties, and especially dinner parties, I keep thinking that those are actually the kind of primal site of people's worries about etiquette. You know, the notorious 25 forks, and when you use this goblet, and when you use that one. I mean, we've got to be talking about exclusion, because this is a set of codes established to make sure some people never make it to the table, you know, there are examples of schools telling young kids they have bad manners because they eat with their hands when that's the way they've been taught to eat in their households, uh, cl- including every one of us who grew up eating pizza or hamburgers or hot dogs. Um, I mean, you've got to see some of this.
4: I, I certainly recognize that exclusion exists in the world. I recognize that um, that racism exists, sexism exists, homophobia, um, judgment of people based on socioeconomic status um, is, is very real. I also think that etiquette doesn't run contrary to the realities of the world that we live in. I also, yeah. I, I, I can't hear you talk about it and not mention that there are so many things about the table that express values that are very different than the ones that you just talked about, that you could look at a table today and see it as a place where equals come together. No chair is higher than any others. Every place at the table is set the same way. And this was a development, this was an evolution from the traditions that preceded it, where the king sat at one end of the room on a throne that was higher than everybody else. And we retain some traditions from that past. We have potentially a host who plays a leadership role, but while they now guide their guests through the meal, they don't dictate it in the way that the the potentate or the king used to. We've we've <laughs> come down to the table where we, we, we sit together and we share the food equally, and there are a lot of egalitarian values that are expressed at the table. Part of, I think the, the reality that, that our manners and our social expectations emerge from societies. I think the the power structures that are at work in a culture are going to be apparent and are going to be a part of the social expectations, the manners of that culture or society. And to me, you want to be looking at those, those fundamental issues and definitely how manners perpetuate them or, or, um, That put them into play. But I don't think you're ever gonna escape the concept of manners. I think as we get more inclusive societies, better functioning societies, the manners will work better, but I don't think they're gonna go away, if that makes any sense.
2: After the break, advice for the Thanksgiving table plus a sociologist helps us understand the role of manners in society.
0: Wanna make mom's day?
1: And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: Welcome back to This is Critical. We've been talking to Daniel Post-Senning, great-great-grandson of Emily Post, who wrote the book on etiquette. Lately there's been more attention to the way manners perpetuate inequality and I wanted to know if Daniel has seen etiquette's reputation take a hit because of that.
4: I'll tell you about something that was really interesting. We we did a uh, a study with a a branding group a number of years ago now and they looked at people's responses to the word etiquette. They charted people's emotional responses. So you asked for one word replies or associations with the word etiquette and then they assigned positive negative values and they charted it out, right? So the distribution pattern they got, they told us was unique from all their time doing this kind of a study. They had a tight little cluster right in the middle, the positive associations, and then a very broad distribution around the periphery. So basically, people had either very strong positive associations and feelings about the concept of etiquette or very negative um, associations and feelings about the word etiquette. Some people remember someone they were very close to, a mother, someone who initiated them to something that was valuable to them, a business mentor. Other people remember an experience where they felt judged, excluded, or out of place in some way. Something that was very personally um, uncomfortable and difficult. And and that's a reality. That's a reality anytime I'm talking about this topic. And I absolutely recognize it. I know that that's part of of the, the ground that I walk on when I do this work. And the best that I can do is try to offer people the perspective, I think, that makes it the most potentially useful Because I also think that social expectations are something we're never going to escape. They're always going to be with us. We don't operate independently. We operate in a network of human connection, and it's a lot of work. There's no easy or simple answers. So,
2: the two things that I'm understanding now about Thanksgiving is year after year, we discuss table manners and vicious arguments as what the thanksgiving t- table produces. Um tell me about what you think are the baseline manners we should all bring to the thanksgiving table. That are inclusive and 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 don't require all kinds of you know you don't need to have a postdoc in manners to to pull them off. <laughs> and then after that, tell me about arguments because you know depending on the table, some people think a lively, frank, and friendly exchange of views is what a dinner table is about. I love a political discussion at the dinner table.
4: Um, I think it's important to pay attention to that day and that meal. So. To me, that means really knowing knowing your audience. And, and maybe I know my audience is you, and that you and I having a, a good and honest and maybe vigorous discussion about politics, religion, dating, or our love lives, the three uh, topics that were not discussed in polite company, <laughs> um, but, but without which we wouldn't have spiritual lives or a functioning civil society or um, a love life are important, and they're important to you, and I I would enjoy that conversation with you. In general, I'm going to defer, and I'm going to say, you know what, those conversation topics are definitionally potentially very controversial because people have very different and very strong opinions about them. If we can say, let's take this hour, hour and a half, two hours, and not invest it with conflict, let's make it a time of Hmm. thanksgiving and togetherness and um, appreciation for each other and the things we have in life to be appreciative for, Gratitude is a uniter. It's something that brings people together and it brings communities together. And if, if, if we can make the space uh, a safe space for that concept, I think it's worth doing. One of my favorite concepts is you gotta, you got to have some understanding of formality for your informality to, to function. Otherwise, you're just doing what you do. If you've got some concept of the range of options for yourself, then you're making choices. So walking up to that dinner table, like fired up, ready to go, (laughs) I don't think you're making a lot of choices.
2: When everyone's tiptoeing around arguing or when you know that there's a potential argument that could happen, the thing that I think diffuses, and you can tell me if you you agree or not, the thing that most diffuses tempers is not just simply anodyne discussions of the weather or kind of general gratitude for having your health, um, but um, stories. I just think... The dinner table conversation should be stories, should be you were around during the, uh, you know, during the protests for the Vietnam War or, you know, tell me what that was like or tell me what it was like to go to Howard or tell me what it was like when you, you know, briefly lived in Johannesburg. I love stories about, I mean, any virtually anything. So what I counsel my kids to do is narrative, 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 no polemic, just stories. (laughs) What
4: do you think? I like I, I like stories. I mean, stories are how we connect. It's how we understand the world. I mean, yeah. n- narrative is how we, we fundamentally connect emotionally to anything. And um, I couldn't agree more. Also, it, sort of implicit in what you're talking about is a willingness to listen, uh, questioning yeah. others, uh, uh, cultivating a curiosity about the people around you and the world you live in. I think ultimately being interested makes you a more interesting person. Um, yeah, I, I, I like to tell people that just because you're in tier one conversation territory, safe conversation tori- territory doesn't mean you need God. to be boring. It doesn't mean you're always talking about the weather, particle physics, the opera. I mean, it, it, there are a lot of safe conversation topics that are that are deep. People are interesting. And if you're interested in them, um, I think it, it it opens a lot of doors. No question.
2: Thank you so much for being here, Daniel. This has been illuminating. Thanks a
4: lot. It's my pleasure.
2: It's pretty obvious why someone like Daniel Post Senning would have a sanguine outlook about etiquette. It's his family's life work. But I can't shake the notion that some of this stuff is just a bunch of aristocratic affectations or even some kind of menacing tool of the regime. So I wanted to talk to a critic of manners. Mervyn Horgan is a sociologist at the University of Guelph, just outside Toronto. Mervyn, welcome to This is Critical.
3: Uh, thanks for having me, Virginia. Delighted to be here.
2: See, look how polite you're already being. I am delighted (laughs) to have you. How about that? Um,
3: The the, the pleasure is all mine,
2: I insist. (laughs) No, no, no. No, it's mine. It's an honor. Okay. It is said there's a direct relationship between manners and morals. I think there's some expression like manners are morals in miniature. Mm -hmm. But what we call manners may also serve an antisocial, immoral, even, function.
3: You know, we, we use lots of different terms for manners, right? We say manners, we say politeness, we say etiquette, and the one that I'm interested in is civility. Because mm. whenever we talk about, whenever we invoke something like civility, we all we also automatically invoke its opposite, which you know could be incivility, but is also kind of barbarism, right? Mm. We we kind mm-hmm. of contrast civilization and barbarism. So I think it's very it's very interesting to think about the kind of historical connections and the the kind of etymological links between um, the idea of manners and civility and civilization being cultured, right? So suddenly we get all these sorts of value moralistic kind of judgments on top of really very basic little um, sort of interactional
2: norms. I hadn't thought of it, but it evokes this problematic, let's say, relationship between civilization and barbarism. Mm -hmm, I think of people mm -hmm. saying to their children, and I've done it before, were you raised in a barn? You know, that there's something almost feral um, yeah, or totally. inhuman even about um, about people with quote bad manners,
3: yeah, yeah, and so it's interesting because the the sort of um, the kind of history of manners over time and how they how that the emergence of kind of um, etiquette as a marker of civility and of of kind of being an upstanding moral citizen sort of thing is really connected to distancing oneself from the animal right it's about mm increased distanciation from animality, which is really, really fascinating.
2: Yeah, I was just looking at the posts, uh, you know, this this dynasty of um, etiquette experts. There are kind of 10 just baseline requirements for comportment at the Thanksgiving table. And they seem to imply <laughs> a lot of sort of distance and uprightness, as you say. So obviously, you're not meant to chew with your mouth open as Many animals do, or and you have to use forks in this very elaborate distance mm-hmm. from your food way, mm-hmm. you know, and sit back without elbows on the table. And those things really do seem an effort to distance yourself from kind of a pig at the trough.
3: Yeah, um, totally, totally. Yeah. And even simple, so the use of cutlery is really interesting, right? There's a, you know, old, old kind of book on the history of manners by an old sociologist by the name of Norbert Elias, and he talks about the rise of the fork. And he connects the emergence of the use of the fork. He connects it to the sort of growth of ideas of private life and interiority and the the, the removal of the kind of communal pot that we eat from and that the fork is a, sort of a symptom of individualizing society at the dinner table. And things
2: right? ah, That everyone yeah. has his or her own fork. Um, exactly. And- so then
3: it, it implies then that you have your own plate, right? That you you have your own meal as opposed to sticking your hands in the bowl of mush and... Showing it down together, right?
2: Um, right, which sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> it <does>. um,
3: <laughs> Well, it's cool, right? Because then, then if we have like the hamburger and you rediscover the sensuality of touching food with your hands then, right?
2: I want to start with what I know you've seen as the, the great pro-social possibilities of manners, ways of being in the world that promote social harmony. You saw mm-hmm. this recently at a, relatively recently, at a public skating rink where you yeah, did yeah. Uh, research while on ice skates participatory yeah,
3: yeah. research <laughs> that's right so we uh, we basically a group of um, myself and my uh, uh, co-investigator Sarah Leneman and a team of graduate students uh, we hung out at two different um, sorry we we engaged in naturalistic and participant observation <laughs> at uh, two different um, uh, uh, ice rinks
2: so you were um, watching and skating come on
3: we were both yeah so we were naturalistic <laughs> observation would mean we sat on the perimeter and watched. We kind of found that the rink is a very positive sort of a social space where lots of hierarchies that are salient outside the rink, age being a really important one, I think, um, are disappear on the rink. So you'll have, you know, a, uh, say a 40-something-year-old Irish guy who's learning to skate, uh, stumbles over and falls. And next thing, you know, a six-year-old kid whizzes up and says, hey, are you OK? Can I help you up? Nice. You know, that's not that's not how the world works generally, right? Six-year-olds helping otherwise competent middle aged men, you know, so, um, so we we found that really interesting. Um, And because it's a space where you have this mixing of skill levels, um, it's a space where failure is permissible, and you can kind of laugh it off, right? Whereas, you know, if you're at a, if you're at a high level meeting at work or something, and you, Mm. you fall, or you do, you say something stupid, or you, you know, do something silly, it's really embarrassing, whereas at the rink, that sort of failure, that, that embarrassment is kind of permissible.
2: So now to the dark side of good manners. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me about the relationship between etiquette manifestations of civility mm-hmm. and exclusion, etiquette mm. and inequality.
3: You know, so you can think of spaces where where there are very rigid sorts of norms of civility. So say like an opera house, right, where there's very, you know, the people are dressed up. It's yeah. strict, you know, there's kind of strict conventions around when to clap and this sort of thing. And, you know, oh, somebody claps after you know, the first movement. What? Oh my goodness. And you <laughs> kind of look at them. So that, that particular practice of the silent, the silence of an audience in between movements where you only clap at the end of the mm. entire symphony, whatever it is, that's, that emerged in France um, as hierarchies in France started to flatten in the post-revolutionary period. Mm. So audiences previously, if you went to the opera, it wasn't for... I mean, you, people were wealthier, but it was people would eat food and they would throw their chicken bones at the performers in the middle of the of, in the middle of the opera, right?
2: I think there was a riot in New York City over yeah. which performance <laughs> was better by people that had come to boo the tenor.
3: Um, right, right.
2: <laughs> but, um, but yeah. So, interestingly, right if, as you're describing it, post-revolution in a more equal society, that's when the manners kick in.
3: Yeah, so, it's, so what happens is the, the aristocrats are the, the people who were kind of born into title are going now, but now there's all these nouveau riche scumbags, right? These, mm. these former peasants, right, who've, who've risen from the dirt are appearing at the opera because they want to engage in high culture activities. Mm. So now they have to find ways to provide, to make marks of distinction, the aristocrats. So the aristocrats start to fall silent. So they can kind of then, you know, look down their noses at these, at these newcomers who don't understand that one should be silent at this point. Um, So it becomes a marker of distinction and a way of elevating one's own position. So really, I mean, manners, comportment, uh, demeanor, decorum, right? Mm -hmm. They're all sort of little behavioral cues that are really, they're not about the individual, they're about, they're always about the interaction, right? So you can think about kind of ritualized settings like a dinner, but even very simple, what we call interaction rituals in sociology, like saying hello, things like this. These are all opportunities to demonstrate one's kind of orientation to the world and and to demonstrate one's status, but in particular, one's status vis-a-vis whoever you're interacting with, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, what, what seems interesting in the United States anyway, and sometimes I think also, as I understand it, in the rest of North America and Canada, is that... The violator of those norms, like Rodney Dangerfield, goes to a waspy club, right, in a caddyshack, and Mm -hmm. he just shows up all the ridiculous hypocrisy among the elites. And then all of a sudden, he's the real person. You know, and he becomes the hero of the piece. And I think this is a little bit the rise of our former president was predicated on that, that he was the swaggering Manhattanite who didn't do his hair the right way, who didn't do all these things the right way. And he made a virtue of that. I sometimes think Mm -hmm. of it as vice signaling, you know, as opposed to virtue signaling. Like, I'll just break all these rules. Right, right. So, I mean, might there be a power move? in breaking all the rules, wearing a hoodie by Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, showing that you're above the above decorum?
3: Oh, I think so. Absolutely. And I mean, I think the um, and the sort of judgment of others, uh, let's say that the judgment that you're subject to elites can, yes, you can uphold all sorts of rules of manners and etiquette, but then you're you're also the one who's permitted to break them. Whereas the sort of social sanction for somebody lower lower on a hierarchy who breaks these rules is going to be, it's going to be more, right? It's going to be—they're uh, going to be sanctioned in some way, yeah. Whether you know, excluded, ignored, not introduced to the to the top dog at the meeting or whatever it is, right?
2: Coming up after the break, how do manners play in different cultures?
1: Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mick crispy So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Brick responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois.
2: Welcome back to This is Critical. I'm talking with the sociologist Mervin Horgan, who studies how manners work, especially in public spaces. So one of the things Thanksgiving brings to mind is that the rules of Thanksgiving we have now, there's a strict idea that there's some sort of table manners that we have to observe, maybe an inheritance from that first Thanksgiving by colonists, by our imperial manners. Or, you know, that that idea in the empire, we do it this way because we're English. You know, we're meant to make that table— different from the world of indigenous people, the colonized people, the people the English were attempting to colonize. And that's relevant, I think, to the question of manners in a place like Ireland or even a place like Israel, um, where defying the manner of Europeans in the case of Israel or the English in the case of Ireland is kind of part of the way that the national culture is formed.
3: Well, so you get this—you get a very interesting sort of a thing that happens. I think um, with with the kind of relationship between between Ireland as a colony and and the the metropole and the the, the center is that it, it permits by being by virtue of being you know a colonized person, it permits you to violate the norms, but to play with them in all sorts of ways. So there's you know that's you know, this way. There's a great tradition of Irish satirists, for example, because you have to understand the. The etiquette and the curtsies and all that sort of stuff that's expected in the in the centre, but you you have no investment whatsoever in, in the social order that they uphold, right? So you you can you can play with them, you can exaggerate them, you can demean them. Um, so I, I think the kind of tradition of Irish satire writing and and uh, kind of comedic performance is definitely related to this.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Tell me about a, a way, ways that manners express or codify kind of racist. Inequalities.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's, um, there's a really good sociologist. Uh, I think he's currently at Yale, a guy called Elijah Anderson. He's a famous kind of urban ethnographer, um, in, in sociology. And he, he has done work over the last 15, 20 years. He wrote a book called The Cosmopolitan Canopy. And it's a study. It's basically based, it's based on him hanging out at a lunch counter at the main market in, in Philadelphia. And that he calls it a cosmopolitan canopy, this sort of place where, where kind of, racial difference is kind of sidelined momentarily where he as a middle-aged black man can sit next to a white guy and talk about sport and that there seems this, this kind of veneer of civility. But then he says, he says, you know, like a a condition of existence for African-Americans is that they have to negotiate life in white spaces. Whereas white people in America very rarely have to negotiate being in black spaces as a condition of their everyday lives. So he says that if you're an African American in public space, that you you can have this this veneer of civility, people can be kind to you and whatever. But there's at every moment there's the threat or the possibility of what he calls the N word moment. That every single African American will ex- has the, the, has this threat looming over them that somebody will call them out in some way or will make some you know accuse them of something or make some kind of racist remark. And th- this is an a, an omnipresent feeling for, for African Americans in public space. I think that's really astute, right? He talks about this and you know to just and he, he outlines some of them in, in the book, right? It's worth definitely worth having a look
2: The problem that I want to submit to you in okay. y- in your new role as like <laughs> manner specialist. Um, <laughs> I don't think that the posts could handle this one. So I was on a flight from Morocco in a very tight coach. And, um, I was seated next to two Liberians. You know, I was really interested in their stories, though I couldn't, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't communicate about them. But the one sitting next to me sat in his seat cross-legged. So his knee was digging into my ribs. And it, you know, that initially I told myself. Everybody has different sets of manners. But the deeper it dug into my ribs and the longer the flight went on, the more my politics gave way to an effort to balance. I mean, certainly from an American, I wouldn't have accepted it. And certainly from an American man— I would mm-hmm. think it was like some kind of spreading and almost like vaguely assault. and mm-hmm. But but from this guy, I just assumed there's another world I don't know about and good cultural relativism. Right, right. Anyway, right. didn't get any sleep, played a little video game on my phone the whole time. It was fine. But what do you think? What should I have done?
3: So I think there's one very interesting thing about, about um, the relationship between civility and the built environment and the, our material environment. So an airplane is a fantastic example. So, you know, we hear all this thing about air rage. Um, we hear lots, you know, we see, you see your videos of air rage incidents and particularly with the masking stuff that you guys are not very good at uh, in the U.S. compared to everywhere else in the world. And uh, <laughs> thanks,
2: um, for <laughs> thanks for that. Thanks for that elbow in my ribs.
3: There you go. There you go. Just a little little nudge. Yeah. Um, we tend to kind of ascribe something, but it's it's some moral failing of an individual, let's say, um, on an airplane because they get angry about somebody pushing their seat back or something like this. Right. But when we think about the relationship between the material makeup of where we're sitting, so airplanes are smaller and smaller. You've got less and less space you're more and more constrained i i am of the opinion that it's less about the fact that individuals have some kind of in, are inherently crappy to each other more that we ha- there's sort of elements of our material environment that produce possibilities for conflict between us mm-hmm. right so so badly designed parking lots produce arguments between people yes. about parking slots right um really tight airline seats Make it hard for people to protect their personal space. Yes. I mean, in your case, you should have just had the—you uh, probably should have just had the middle armrest down. Would that not have uh, dem- given you a little—a little barrier to demonstrate that this is my spot?
2: But I would have had to jam it down on his knee. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, believe you, me, I had a long time to think about every option.
3: <laughs> you weren't—you weren't quick enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a habit
2: on Twitter of people kind of telling on people on planes who are who are being bad and I'm not talking about the people in the aisles smacking someone in the face but I mean mm-hmm. someone who's tilting their seat back which is mm-hmm. now considered rude because it cramps the person behind you mm-hmm. exactly this is this is a it's almost an encapsulation of a structural mm-hmm. problem that turns mm-hmm. us into hating each other and yeah, then we decide yeah. it's a personal problem that this person's badly mannered Yeah Just before we go tell us mm-hmm. about how it sounds like civility can spontaneously arise in a place like a skating rink. Is there any way to set the context so that we can have civility at the dinner table at Thanksgiving, say?
3: Ooh, wow. <laughs> you might have to go to Emily Post for that. I don't know, uh, your seating arrangement.
2: But a sort of idea of hospitality. I mean, is it better if everyone brings a dish, say, or that you sit around a living room or go outside? Or the, I mean, there must be some way to get that skating rink feeling.
3: Well, I think it's part of the problem. The, the skating rink also permits the the kind of civil sociability because people are don't know one another. I think it's the, the dinner dinner ah. table becomes complicated because people do. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, so you you the, the sort of uh, the need for demonstrating respect is very different yeah right, and we, we can be much more playful with norms with people we know right mm-hmm. and we can kind of work at a more a more, much more complex semantic level when we're talking with people that we have that we're intimate with who know us well or that we've known for a long time right
2: Yes thank you so much for being here, Professor Horgan. as I said it is my honor I am humbled by your presence here. Thank you
3: Wonderful to talk to you, Ms. Henon <laughs>
2: That's it for this week's show. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people learn about us. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at Page88 and at This Critical Pod. If you've got a question or cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Harry Huggins is the producer, Tracy Samuelson is our editor, Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Marderana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical.
0: Ditcher.
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medella, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. doubt, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Port, Chicago, Illinois.